looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, good day, good day, everyone. It's that time once again, of course, every day from Monday to Thursday at 11 o'clock Central African time, we are having our program African Dialogue. Thank you for joining us where we contextualize the big subjects uh, on the African continent. Remember, we're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Uh, that's our shortwave service into the continent. And you can find us on DSTV in South Africa and some SEDEC countries on the channel 802 on the audio bouquet and internationally and on the continent you can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za well today we're going to be looking at a very important conversation especially after we saw uh, the country's president Cyril Ramaphosa um, actually coming back uh, from um, the recent United Nations generally General Assembly and we know that South Africa's Minister of International Relations and corporations, Lindiwe Sisulu, hosted a workshop on the review of South Africa's foreign policy last week. Uh, the purpose of the workshop was really to engage non-government stakeholders as part of a broader and phased consultation effort in the process of reviewing South Africa's foreign policy. Earlier this year, a review panel to steer a new direction of the country's foreign policy was appointed by the minister, who has made it clear that she wants to overhaul South Africa's foreign foreign policy position in the continent. Well, to assist us on this particular issue, we're joined by Aziz Pahad, who has been Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs in South Africa from 1999 to 2008. He's currently the chairperson of the Ministerial Review Panel in the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. We also have on the line Kwezim Nibisa. It's been a long time speaking to him. It's great to have him back on our program. He's the General Manager of Operations at the Centre for the Constructive Resolution of Disputes, also known as Accord. Well, let's start the conversation with uh, Mr. Pahad. Thank you for giving us your time, sir. Thank you. Good morning, and thanks for having me on this program. Well, it's very interesting to see the various changes and dynamics uh, in terms of South Africa's foreign policy. When you were part of the Foreign Affairs Department, uh, uh, Mr. Pahad, and uh, we've seen a very much different take on foreign policy. We know during uh, uh, um, President Tabombeki's turn, uh, there was a big emphasis on the African Renaissance stance, and there was a lot of effort in terms of peacekeeping keeping missions. Post his presidency, things have actually changed dynamically. And now we're seeing the current uh, uh, foreign uh, or minister of international relations and cooperation actually saying that she wants to change the foreign policy position of South Africa. Why now? Well, I think uh, the minister's decision, and as you know, the minister was just 
recently appointed as the Minister of uh, Durko, and many countries are reviewing foreign policy given the global political and economic realities, which are fundamentally different uh, from 15, 20 years ago. We are facing a world that is totally uh, in disunited. Mm. Uh, the rules-based systems that have been created since the Second World War are being challenged and in fact fundamentally challenged. Terrorism and extremism is now rampant. Um, we can see the drums of war are banging very much louder in against Venezuela, against um, Syria, against Iran. So we're living in a very unstable economic and political situation. In fact, the World Bank and IMF have, in their report, indicated that globalization and neoliberalism is at a crisis point, and inequality is growing between countries and within countries. Climate change and demographical factors, all these factors are threatening the stability, both of the economic system and the political system internationally. And so, like many countries, we are reviewing our foreign policy to see whether it is still in line with the new global political and economic realities. Mm. Well, let me move to you, Kwezi, in terms of your thoughts around the timing of this revision of uh, South Africa's foreign policy. And I think Mr. Pahad is correct, saying that uh, the global economy has changed so much, even on a political sphere, and uh, things are not what they used to be, just even in the space of the last uh, two years. Thank you and good morning to yourself, Benjamin, and Mr. Pahad and your audience. Um, I think uh, what Mr. Pahad has said is definitely most true and found expression in the discussions in the workshop and other conversations that have taken place prior to the workshop. But I think that uh, whilst the emphasis is on what has changed in the world out there, um, some of the focus has to take place and uh, put emphasis on how we as a country, South Africa, have changed. I mean, we're definitely not the same South Africa that we were uh, post-1994. And indeed, the work that uh, the country has done, very commendable in terms of peace and security, in terms of advancing the African agenda, in terms of pursuing and opening up avenues for the attainment of the objectives of the Global South agenda. Um, We are not the same country. Uh, we do not have the same level of, uh, one would even say, goodwill as we used to enjoy. We do not have the same resources that we used to be in a position to put into the service of these objectives or this cause, as it were. So I think that uh, the, the, the review is coming at the right place in order for us to assess what is the environment like out there 
and perhaps more importantly, what uh, mechanisms and, of course, attributes do we possess at this point in time in order to make an impact in the environment that we find out there? Uh, the change, for example, uh, almost a decade ago of uh, just the name of the department from just simply being foreign affairs to being a department responsible for international relations and cooperation, I think put emphasis on the fact that there needed to be a far more nuanced way in which we pursue our diplomacy vis-a-vis our bilateral interactions with sister countries of the world, as well as the role that we play in multilateral fora mm. uh, that we actually participate or that we are actually signatories in terms of protocols and such like. So I think that the time is appropriate for us to actually take a step back, review uh, what we have to go and make an impact on, at the same time assess whether where do we need to put emphasis in terms of what do we do, how do we do it, who do we do it with, and perhaps more importantly, how do we ensure that with the limited resources that we have, we're in a position to sustain and see agency in some of either the countries that we're working with or the institutions that we're parties and members to. Staying with you, Kwezi, before I go back to Mr. Pahad, I'm interested around the issues of the criticism around the current ANC government, especially under the leadership of Jacob Zuma, the former president of the country, who was criticized for almost having an, a passive African uh, foreign policy, especially post the uh, Tabumbeki era. How do you contrast this with that particular view that you've highlighted in terms of South Africa having limited resources? Well, I mean, if we were to look into, if we were to make an assessment, I would actually caution a pause. Because if we really think about it, uh, the work that uh, the presidency of President Mandela did in so far as to uh, champion the principles of our foreign policy being on human rights and, of course, um, dialogue-inspired resolution of disputes, this work was continued into the presidency of President uh, uh, Mbeki. And indeed, regardless of the standing criticisms that would exist in all the presidencies, President Jacob Zuma's presidency as well pursued this line of work. I mean, if you look into the work that has been done in the last 10 years or so, in so far as South Africa playing a role in the African Union, not just simply the institution or the commission in Addis Ababa, but also in the interventions in the areas of peace and security, in the areas of governance. I mean, there has been a continuation. But I think that instead of making a comparison, which at this point in time, not all the facts are actually known of how those interventions have impacted Mm. on positioning South Africa as living up to its principles, we could actually have a far more informed conversation on has South Africa continued to engage in multilateral fora? Yes, it has. Has South Africa contributed in peace and security? Indeed, it has. I mean, the fact that we have continued to see the hosting of the Pan-African Parliament, regardless of who was president, actually speaks to the fact that the administration, successive administrations, have kept up to the cardinal principles of what we believe South Africa could do in our immediate surroundings, in SADC, in our continent, and indeed in the world. And I do want to make the emphasis, Benjamin, that indeed foreign policy and interventions must be assessed. But I think that it is a little bit too soon at this point in time uh, to actually say that this particular administration has, in one way or another, been apathetic to external or international relations issues. Mr. Pa, do you agree with Kwezi there in terms of issues of continuation um, from um, Nelson Mandela's presidency to uh, the Jacob Zuma era? Yes, actually, because and the ANC as a ruling party, our foreign policy is based on the South African constitution, the principles of the South African constitution. 
And there's a tendency by some analysts to look at the President Mandela era and make a distinction between that with the President Mbeki era, then it's the Zuma era, now it's the... So the thing about foreign policy, the broad principles of foreign policy does not fundamentally change when an individual changes. What happened post-94? South Africa got its democracy in, in a relatively relatively stable world. We had the fall of the Berlin Wall, which created tremors, and we had to then re-look at some of, uh, uh, not only we, everybody in the world, mm-hmm. how we adjust to the fall of the Berlin Wall. We had the 9-11 attacks against the U.S., and again, every country in the world had to adjust their foreign policy to a situation that had arisen where major powers were dealing with very complex interrelated issues threatening peace and stability, the economic future of the world, through what we call militarization of diplomacy. Diplomacy took the backseat in a much more aggressive way since the 9-11 attacks. And once again, we had to review foreign policy throughout the world to see how do we adjust now to a world, a unipolar world, where diplomacy is a thing of the past to many countries, and you try to solve, as I said, the complex problems through military means. And this has now been, unfortunately, it was in the past administrations of the U.S., but now under the... Trump administration, it has been enforced very aggressively, uh, the use of force to deal with diplomacy. I mean, if we don't appreciate that the policies of America first, Brexit, Mm. the rise of, it's not even right-wing, it's neo-fascist organizations in Europe, The, the lack of leadership throughout the world, at every level, it's not just, uh, political parties, it's civil society, it's government, uh, it's business. There is a alienation of the millions of people throughout the world mm. with a political economic system. Now, unfortunately, the regime change of Libya, uh, mm. which Obama in one of his interviews said, if he had known the real facts, he would not have been party to it, but it was a NATO operation led to a collapsed state in Libya. That Mm. has led to the massive migration, first of all, of terrorism to other parts of North Africa and Sub-Sahara. Secondly, massive migration to Europe. And everybody now says that the rise of right-wing nationalism, uh, xenophobia, Mm. racism... Uh, social democracy has been annihilated in, in Europe in a way. And it's because they are saying they can't cope with the massive immigration and they have no, the, the, what is called social democracy has no alternatives to the neo-fascist arguments. Mm. And so we've seen a sweep of neo-fascism in Europe. And we've been arguing 
that you can't deal with a wave of immigration. Previously, it was economic immigrants. Some uh, Africans, sub-Southern Africans, leaving because of the violence. But in recent times, it's massive immigration because of the rise of uh, the overthrow of uh, destabilization of countries in the Middle East, Mm. the imposition of autocratic systems of government and the movement of people, which is itself then causing this new trend in European and North American countries. So we are faced mm. with new reality. Well, uh, and I think what we are also facing, mm. as the Secretary General said, we must really look at our methods of dealing with conflict resolution. Mm. It's a matter of record now. You solve the conflicts, and by and large, within five to seven years, those conflicts break out again. And that points to the finger, are we just bandaging the the wound, or are we looking at the root causes? And now, the emphasis is, don't look for conflict resolution. Start looking at conflict prevention deal with the root causes, which are very complex, Mm. and then work which is linked to development and try to change the whole orientation towards conflict resolution. I've always believed that we are dealing with conflict resolution without accepting that there are new elements in conflict uh, resolution. First of all, there is no conflict in which major powers have an influence and a hand in it. We have now extremism and especially terrorism. Indeed funded and and formed by some of the major powers who themselves are becoming to a threat to the stability of many countries. Mm. So we are living in a transformed uh, international environment and it's clear while the policies remain broadly speaking the same, the respective administrations either were very drastically weakened, and I'll say in South Africa, post-2008, uh, you know, you can't have a situation where so many director generals mm-hmm. are changed overnight. Uh, the capacity for thinking mm-hmm. in government uh, ministries, including in Durko, was really stunted by a new leadership, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it could not sustain itself. The policies did not change fundamentally. In fact, they changed their name. Mm. I think there must we must be the only one of the two countries that has not foreign affairs but international relations. Mm. Which you can change a lot of names, but if you don't change how you are dealing with the world, economic, political, other, how you are dealing with your looking at your policies to make your policies more effective. And I want to say our review has been extensive, and we do think that DELCO does have uh, some good policies on many of the issues that I've been talking about. Mm. The challenge has been, can we unleash the creativity that there is in DELCO? Can we bring back the experience and the thoughts of frank, open discussions with civil society. We must accept that 
DECO is not the, has not got the monopoly mm. of making foreign policy. Okay. Other government departments make foreign policy. Civil society makes foreign policy. Business helps influence foreign policy. Trade unions help mm. influence. And by the way, the media plays a major role in impacting on foreign policy. All right, Mr. Pard, I have to take a quick break, and I would like us to contextualize some of those issues that you are talking about, especially now that South Africa is also representing the continent as a non-permanent member in the United Nations Security Council. How do we tackle those issues in that context? But we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back to you, Mr. Pahad and uh, Mr. Kwezim Nibisa, after this break. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyenzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa. Remember, we're on various platforms on DSTV, on Channel 802, on the audio bouquet. If you're listening to us uh, via our website, that's on www.channelafrica.co.za. And uh, thank you to our African community that's listen to, listening to us rather on our frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. We're discussing South Africa's foreign policy because last week a foreign policy review workshop took place that had various stakeholders that were part of the conversation. Joining us, if you are just uh, tuned in, we've got uh, Mr. Aziz Pahad, who's the chairperson of the Ministerial Review Panel at the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. Also, we have uh, from uh, the Center for the Construction Resolution of Disputes, Kwezi Nibisa, who's the general general manager of operations there. Kwezi, uh, in the context of what has been highlighted very, very elaborately by uh, Mr. Pahad. So what would South Africa's position be in terms of uh, dealing with some of these uh, geopolitical um, issues that uh, Mr. Pahad has highlighted in terms of the re- their own representation as a non-permanent member in the United Nations Security Council? Thanks again, um, uh, Benjamin. I think um, I really want to align myself to much of what um, Mr. Pahad has said in so far as saying that there are attributes within the Department of International Relations and Cooperation that actually places South Africa in a good standing to play a very impactful role um, in its uh, United Nations Security Council non-permanent membership. I think it's important to preface my comments with saying that we should also look into the dynamics that led to South Africa actually assuming this particular seat. It was an uncontested seat. It was one that uh, enjoyed much support, very wide support from within the African continent. And of course, uh, from a a diplomatic um, uh, advocacy and lobbying point of view, South African the South Africa's tenure uh, was considered as one intended to actually advance some of the uh, standing positions um, of the African Union on a number of issues uh, that would find themselves uh, being discussed in the Security Council. Now, looking back into South Africa's um, engagement, um, 
globally and of course within the United Nations. I think from the conversations from the workshop and indeed uh, prior to the workshop, even ongoing conversations, it's clear that uh, there are things that South Africa can actually um, pursue on its own, um, using or leveraging um, its uh, international goodwill. Uh, one. Two, the things that South Africa has, whilst it is in the Security Council, has to pursue in partnership with others, uh, meaning that like-minded organizations or, or rather like-minded countries or at least uh, postures or, or, or principles or for that matter uh, positions of uh, foreign policies of certain countries that are, um, are in lieu with, with, with our own. Sadly, I think it is very much important for South Africa to consider and leverage um, the, 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 the firepower it brings, which is being a representative of the continent, or at least um, a custodian of the continent's positions into the United Nations. And then fourthly, um, the country is not just any other country. Almost every country considers itself as bringing something unique to the table. And South Africa continues to enjoy a lot of uh, goodwill. And this could be used to facilitate some conversations that we expect to be very difficult on a number of issues that will be dealt with by the Security Council. And then lastly, uh, taking into consideration the reality that indeed, especially as we may think we are, or others may think or expect us to be, we're a relatively small country in comparison with some of the big uh, uh, players uh, globally and of course within the Security Council itself. And therefore the fifth thing that we must consider, and which we have proven in the past capable of doing, is to advocate for positions that actually ensure that we live up to the principles of our foreign policy, that we help uh, those that think alike uh, as ourselves to assume postures in the discussions of the Security Council, and lastly, adopt positions that we think would advance those principles and postures. In terms of uh, the things that uh, South Africa should be pursuing in the Security Council, what would those matters be, Kwesi? Well, I mean, if you really think about it, um, we're in a very exciting, uh, so to speak, uh, region when it comes to peace and security. Right up north uh, from our borders is the uh, dilemma of the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, which is supposed to be going into elections. Uh, I think uh, last week or two weeks ago, there was a Security Council delegation that actually went into the country for an effect-finding mission for the purposes of actually informing uh, the deliberations of the Security Council on how to deal with however the elections are conducted, if for that matter they are conducted. In January, when South Africa assumes um, uh, that non-permanent seat, uh, we do expect that amongst some of the prominent issues that of, are of direct impact to our immediate security and stability in the Southern Africa region will be the issue of um, uh, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, further north, if you go into the Great Lakes, uh, the, the issues in South Sudan, the recently concluded agreement, will also be very prominent as we would be at the time of our assumption of that seat in January, will be a couple of months ahead in the first phase of the implementation of that agreement, where a lot of confidence building, where a lot of uh, prior implementation of uh, preparing the two parties and the various other signatories to that agreement would have to, co- to be coerced, convinced uh, into implementing now the substantive aspects of that agreement. Those would be just some of the immediate issues in our immediate uh, surrounding uh, on the continent. Of course, long-running uh, transitions in Somalia with 2020 being a year of elections, the issues of around Libya have not yet been resolved, although we know that there's an African Union roadmap there. We have got the problems in the Sahel. I mean, 
these are just simply some of the few Kesari issues I mm. think mm. of that are related to the continent. But globally, I mean, mm. uh, the, the stalemate and the issues occurring in Syria and mm. elsewhere, these are issues that South Africa will sure. have to start uh, uh, conversing opinions and, of course, asserting some of our principles in making sure that the conversation goes along finding dialogue-inspired mm. solutions or at least deliberations and positions by the Security Council. Mr. Pahad, what are your thoughts there on uh, South Africa's pursuits and its opportunity to actually uh, kind of dent uh, some of uh, uh, the um, powers of the uh, m- permanent members of the United Nations Security Council? How important is the voice of South Africa in that context? Well, I think, firstly, it's clear that there is a consensus of what are the issues that are going to emerge in the second between civil society and and DECO. From all our discussions in the last few days, there is consensus. The challenge now, uh, and let me firstly say that we must thank Africa, and especially Namibia. It was Namibia's turn to go into the Security Council. And they made way for South Africa to honor Mandela's 100th anniversary and his contribution to negotiated solutions, etc. So that, that's another indication of a common African approach to challenges we're facing. I do believe that the issues that Kwesi has mentioned are going to be the key ones. I think I mentioned earlier that the approach of some of the countries to a rules-based system, to multilateralism, is totally unheard of. And as the Secretary-General of the UN in his speech said, the Security Council is very divided. There is no trust between countries and all members, permanent and non-permanent, must help to now try to deal with the situation because the Security Council's task is to deal with threats to regional and international peace. That's its major trust. There's no other uh, challenge. Mm. The problem now we're going to face, and it's also an opportunity, Given the approach of the present American establishment, of course it's going to make it more difficult to continue to get a approach to the UN reform process. Uh, it's going to be more difficult to get the resources because the U.S. administration is cutting a lot of resources mm-hmm. from um, the UN. Eighty percent, as Kwesi was saying, of the Security Council agenda to date has been on sub-Saharan, on Africa, actually. And so that will remain an area where we can cooperate with other members, given that there are now divisions, you know, these alliances are now no longer as united as they were. There are divisions between the P5, there's the emergence of China, which is causing its own dynamics. And there's a lot of other people in the UN system, including the Security Council, are beginning to be concerned that countries are not looking at the common good. 
They are looking at their own interests, which all of us must do, but not in such populist, nationalist ways. And countries are taking actions that is against international law. And indeed, for instance, it's not a recent thing, but it's been accelerated. You can't go to war against another country if it's not sanctioned and it's not within the framework of the Charter of the Security Council. But in the recent past, and as I said, it's getting worse. Major countries have formed coalitions Mm. to go to war without going through the Security Council. The rules that determined how the new world order was framed, whether we, I support uh, what is called the liberal world order or not, the reality is there were rules that determined uh, how countries related to each other in international relations. Well, that has been, I think, literally mm. changed. Nothing has been put in place. And as the Secretary General says, this means we are working in a vacuum, a very dangerous vacuum. We will try to argue for non-proliferation of weapons, but it is clear all major countries uh, that are nuclear countries are improving their weapons and their Mm. first strike weapons. The U.S. agenda, defense agenda was 703 billion. I'm sure that's an underestimate for this year, dollars. Um, The Russians and Chinese has unpredictably announced that if they haven't done that, I think, in the past, uh, that they are upgrading their first strike nuclear weapons arsenal. So why will argue for the South African representatives will argue for sure. the non-proliferation? They are conscious. That mm. In fact, there is massive proliferation of weapons of uh, mass destruction, firstly, through the P5 countries, mm. And then the neighbors of countries that are being threatened, uh, Iran, Syria, are also going nuclear. So it's inevitable that Iran, which is now facing a unilateral rejection by the Trump administration of the agreement that had been signed by five countries, uh, including, by the way, the previous administration, which had confirmed that the Iranians had con- committed themselves to stopping the nuclear weapon system, any new attempts to further develop the nuclear system. Mm-hmm. The IAEA, which is the international body that has to monitor, has said that only in its latest report that, yes, Iran is complying to the agreement. All right. The new sanctions... The, and it's going to be increased more, mm. the unilateral withdrawal from the P5 plus 1 agreement, the very serious threat of going to war against Iran by mm. a coalition of forces cannot be underestimated. Mm. So while we are talking generally about uh, uh, fundamentally changing world, what I think humanity is doing is sleepwalking in our way into a possible, by accident or design, major power confrontations in Iran 
in Syria, it was there, it mm. has been a bit calmed down, but I still think there is a possibility of ex- accidental sure. um, uh, war between superpowers. The Russians have supplied the Syrians with its latest S-300 weapons. The Americans have just announced its new 10-year, well, it was signed in 2010, it's implemented 2010 program of billions of dollars to uh, Israel in the next few years. Uh, many countries in the Gulf states mm. and the U.S. and Israel have declared uh, Iran as an existential threat and they're preparing action against Iran. All right, let me so, try to see if we can just wrap up the, the conversation in, in some way because that contextualization of uh, uh, the geopolitical patterns that we're seeing, I had to listen to them by Mr. Bahad because it's also very rare to get him on radio to speak. Kwezi, in terms of us realigning ourselves in these complicated times, where do we start in terms of foreign policy as a country? I've got two minutes left. I'll give you the last say, Kwezi. I think that the starting point from an approach uh, point of view uh, should be to say that uh, when, when the workshop and indeed any work that is being done on foreign policy should not only just simply be looking at South African participation in multilateral organizations such as the United Nations. I think that should be the starting point. So basically we are actually needing to acknowledge the fact that we are dealing with a country indeed, uh, as emphasized earlier, with a lot of goodwill. We are possibly one of the few countries that has got the, the most number of uh, diplomatic representations and, and, and delegations across the continent as a starting point, our immediate background. So when we're talking about reviewing what we do out there, it's not only in these very big uh, struct, uh, uh, multilateral organizations, it's also about how do we relate with uh, sister countries and, um, and our regional organizations. I think what has come out of my own conversations, and of course uh, reflecting, I think, also my organization's experiences of working with DIRCO, working broadly with government and indeed civil society in this country and elsewhere, three things came out, is that there's a need for South Africa to strengthen its ability to be a champion of the operationalization of existing protocols uh, that we have signed up to or that actually reflect some of the principles of our foreign policy. That's the starting point. The second point is that uh, with much progress that has been done since the change of, from the organization of African unity to the African Union, there still remains a need to to consolidate the implementation of some of these protocols. Because some of them have been implemented, some of them have not been domesticated. There's a whole range of work that needs to be done, and South Africa could therefore, uh, uh, in its review, look at ways in which it could be a champion and advocate, a facilitator, or an enabler of implementation of already existing very progressive uh, uh, initiatives and interventions. And then lastly, it's for South Africa to acknowledge that Whatever progress it has made or it needs to make as a country, it still has a role and a responsibility to advocate uh, for some of the for, for the differentiated progress made by individual countries to live up to their obligations to both regional, uh, continental, and global uh, uh, protocols and agreements. Well, thank you, Jens, for giving us your time. That's the voice there of Kwezi Mlebisa, who is the General Manager of Operations at the Center for the Constructive Resolution of Disputes. Thank you once again for giving us your time, Kwezi. We appreciate it. 
Thank you very much. He was speaking alongside Mr. Aziz Pahad. He is uh, the former Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs in South Africa from uh, 1999 to 2008 and was recently the chairperson of the Ministerial Review Panel in the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. Thank you, Mr. Pahad, for giving us your time and your viewpoints on uh, this issue of foreign policy. We appreciate your time as well. Thank you.